Welcome to Finding My Yum, a sex-positive podcast celebrating all forms of sexual expression. Each week, we bring on a new guest to share their journey. We talk honestly and openly about what they're into and what sex, kinks, love, and more look like in the real world. I'm Jerry Courtney Austin. And I'm Will Lentz. And we are your hosts. Today, we are thrilled to have Alex Cresswick here to talk all about uh, sensitivity, readership, and um, anti-racism. We actually had them on before uh, COVID, and uh, I was fascinated by this idea of being a sensitivity reader, which is essentially somebody who... um, takes a script um, and is hired to look at a script for potential problems um, and how the public is going to react to to certain aspects or portrayals of different characters, whether they be stereotypical or offensive, etc., and really getting into the character's motivations um, and intent and then following it through in an authentic way as opposed to relying on these more stereotypical um, sort of, you know, uh, easier outlets of just assuming behavior and assuming um, background. Yeah, it's like about like trying to create characters and less just relying on tropes. Yeah, 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 exactly. Thank you. That was helpful. Um, and, and I found our conversation really fascinating. Uh, it was pre-COVID, the first one. And so we got into little specifics about about what they do and, and different scripts that they encountered. And um, it just felt like it wasn't as topical and that the industry had changed so dramatically in the last four months that um, – we wanted to record again, and I'm so grateful that they were willing to come back. Um, and, you know, this conversation really focused on how to be an effective anti-racist. And um, this Alex has been in this line of work for quite a while and has so much knowledge. And so it was really wonderful to glean and learn um, so much information from them as an example of, of what they set in the world and then also in their work and, and, and what we're bringing forward in terms of entertainment and mirror of society so um yeah it was really cool i think this is one of the you know it's not as sexuality focused but it's all within the realm of um you know how we how we portray people and and how we allow them to be portrayed authentically and expressed freely yeah and i mean i think that as you have discussed a number of times i think you know we came into creating this podcast with the idea that sexuality was one thing and then realized that it does touch every single part of our our relationship with sex every single part of our humanity um so yeah yeah, there's naturally a lot of stuff that's going to cross over in here too and we felt like this was a really important conversation to have at this time um and i you know i think it's it's great so i think everybody's going to really enjoy it yeah so without further ado please enjoy Yay! Welcome to Finding My Yum. I'm so excited. Today we have Alex Kreswick here. Uh, they are a sensitivity reader extraordinaire. Um, I'm so grateful to have you back. <laughs> so thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me back. Thanks for the first time as well. It was, uh, <laughs> it was fun enough that we're back doing it again. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it was pre-COVID, so unfortunately we didn't <laughs> release it because the whole world is in upheaval and everything seemed irrelevant. It feels like a completely pre- different world. 
right? almost entirely. So, you know. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and specifically talking about the comment or the content coming out of Hollywood and what's in production and, and sort of your role seems to, at least from my perspective, kind of shifted a lot um, because of the civil rights revolution that's happening. And then also, you know, I, I don't even know what kind of content is coming out of this era, but. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm excited to get into it. I'd love to, first of all, talk a little bit about your background and like where you're from and how you even became to be a sensitivity reader, which um, you can define if you, if you would be so gracious. <laughs> uh, man, that's that's a lot of ground to cover, but. That's a lot of ground. You're right. I just told you to like. <laughs> Share our entire, entire, life, entire life and ethos into one podcast. <laughs> yes, yes, that was a lot. So, so maybe some highlights that feel sure. <laughs> for particularly impactful for for this moment and and this this job. <laughs> so, um, I'm a sensitivity reader and a social impact producer. So, yeah, as a sensitivity reader, I'm reading scripts and trying to help people recognize their unconscious bias and really make sure that all of the character moments, all of the story moments are rooted in character um, instead of sort of leaning into stereotype. So I like to tell writers that I am deeply uh, concerned with your intent and my job is to help make sure that your intent is accurately reflected to as many people as possible. Um, and for sort of execs and people who are more money conscious, I tell them that uh, it's all the reasons the internet's going to get mad at you and can't say no one told you. <laughs> <laughs> right. There you go. Which is incredibly useful. Um, and so, you know, how did you get to this position? Um, I guess going back, like where, where did you grow up and, and what kind of role in the entertainment industry did you want to play or or was the entertainment industry where you wanted to end up? Well, I grew up in South Carolina, uh, very deep south, and it was uh, an interesting growing up just because of kind of who I am as a person and my outlook on life. Um, I'm very much uh, a world builder, sort of at the core of my outlook and life. So I'll take the stories that people tell me and then start sort of dissecting them and figuring out what's if we strip all of the the stuff around it all of the bullshit all of the extraneous stuff what is the bare bones message that this story is teaching me and does it jive with everything else everyone has taught me <laughs> which is mm. you might see how that could be a little bit problematic growing up in a culture so steeped in biblical mythology <laughs> sure and oh my gosh so, <laughs> Growing up, um, I deeply do not like sermonizing. I don't like being preached at. I like conversations. I like talking to people and engaging people. And I never just, even when I'm creating things, I never want to be a static storyteller. I want to invite the audience into the story. I want to be playful with them. I want them to engage in the material. Um, and that's sort of the ethos that I also bring into the work I do with other people because I think that um, we like writers at the very core of this industry, they're really the bedrock of the industry because you can't do much without a script. So, totally. Um, yeah, absolutely. And so any way that you can sort of invite an audience into your world and 
really ground what you were saying in the character because honestly what happens when you avoid stereotypes stereotype are things that are inherently not character based they're things that are external to your character so if you go into a read with sort of that mentality of like i want to avoid inauthentic representations it forces you to look at the, re the reason that these things are inauthentic the reason they're kind of pinging or why somebody might not have the reaction you want them to have mm -hmm. and rotate it back and put it back into character and it inevitably makes your story stronger so like all of this was things that I was doing with like biblical stories which like it did not occur <laughs> to me that that's not how you should approach the Bible. <laughs> like it never sure. occurred to me to approach the bible as anything but like another book another thing that I was supposed to learn from <laughs> Which I think is a pretty healthy, personally, way of, of looking at it as like, a, this is to learn and to, to stimulate your mind and to, to be a metaphor for potential behavior and not the doctrine of all doctrines and therefore you can't look right. or do anything else or question. And, in, and inherent to that sort of mentality is you're always asking questions. You're always asking mm -hmm. what, where, who, where, why. And my questions soon turned into like, well, this doesn't jive. Like you told me that everyone, God loves everyone and like love your neighbor. And then you're turning around and telling me like why certain groups of people are bad. And those two things, like I could never find the connection for them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Talking just kind of broadly growing in South Carolina. So uh, I grew yeah. up sort of actively deprogramming myself from a lot of that problematic thinking, which really aided me in the long run as I started going into um, more of like an academic, I really would say that I started doing what would become the foundation for my sensitivity reading in college, uh, because, and I, at the exact moment, it's because of Memoirs of a Geisha, which is okay. a very problematic book. But the biggest problem, like one of the things I have when I like to discuss com uh, um, education with people is we need to teach people how to consume media because no one sat my white ass down and said, hey, you need to pay attention to who is writing the books, mm -hmm. who the authors are. Because, you know, I, my little like burgeoning white feminist person was like, oh, this was written by a man or this was written by a woman, just very binary in that sense. I wasn't thinking sure. sectionally because A of all, no one had told me. And like, I had just not like it was there percolating in the back of my mind. The thing that did not make sense in this world building was, was just, it was hitting, but I had no name for it. Mm. And I wrote a paper about memoirs of a geisha, but I was treating it as like, what? Nobody would write a book if they didn't intimately understand these things, like little naive place. Sure. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And my teacher, she tried to kind of start having this conversation with me that was basically her sound like this dude is really racist and like the fact that you enjoyed this book or like you weren't thinking of the problematic elements of it also makes you racist she wouldn't actually say that directly but i'm the kind of curious person that like first off what about this is making you not tell me because i'm a student like i am here to learn you are the professor <laughs> what is like what are we i don't understand what's going on here but there's clearly something that she was trying to say. So I got on the internet and started doing my own research and immediately found a like, hey, here's why this is super goddamn problematic. Here's the real person who this story was stolen from. And I just like 
this was one of the first moments which I realized was me realizing that my education was very biased mm. and it was up to me to like fill in the gaps and so this whole process of sort of decolonizing your thoughts and recognizing your own biases and being able to call out the biases in other people um it all just starts with rigorous self uh examination and really not letting yourself off the hook for things and that was like in retrospect that i went from oh here's a paper i should get a decent grade to like mortified that I had ever written this paper in the span of like three hours. Oh, wow. Yeah, of course. And it all goes like nobody just sat me down and was like, here are the things like you really need to consider. Like no one actually taught me how to consume media. I had to go back and like redo that and just be like, oh, <laughs> this recontextualizes quite literally everything I have ever read. And that was really the gateway. It was just like a very quick downhill slide to, oh, I now understand why none of this makes sense. <laughs> so right. a lot of that, what I do is pulling at threads and figuring out like, who benefits from this action that happens in your script? Who benefits from the thing that's happening? Like, who benefits broadly from the story you're telling? But the flip of that question that we don't ask enough is who is specifically not benefiting? <laughs> Mm -hmm. that's yeah. sort of what our job is is to flip the the expected and uh, I find that a lot of my solutions tend to be they're not only rooted in that but they're rooted in like here's what people expect you to do and most yeah. writers are like hey I don't want to do the thing that's expected of me exactly so let's have a really fun time in not doing the expected thing because in not doing the expected thing you have a more broad character you have somebody who's engaging and your story is so much more interesting than right with these like ran regular people who we've seen them do this thing every every single time right right absolutely yeah that's so fascinating you know I I have to personally admit that you know even learning and going to school and somewhat recognizing the bias that you're identifying but not even to this that extent but then over the last month all of a sudden truthfully and embarrassingly so to be 30 years old and having like these massive revelations of like holy shit the depth of white supremacy, privilege, and racism that I've been complicit in, been a victim of, and then victimized other people because of my upbringing is like, I mean, I'm, it, it's staggering, it's horrifying, and it just even scratches the surface. And so then to take a lens and look into entertainment of like, okay, well, how can I participate? And even this podcast, right? Like even starting this, I realized like, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm gaining a lot more perspective and, and talking to a bunch more people. And then realizing like, I'm really giving the white perspective, which is fine. And that was something that was like my first lens, but like not even having a reference of like me being like, oh, the, you know, it's, it's the larger scope. And it's like, no, it's, it's not. It is a very narrow scope and I need to be able to acknowledge that and not having other people around either who are like, hey, here's the thing. <laughs> um, what, like, take a look at this, you know, because we were very discouraged from putting those labels on and because they're so 
damaging and we had associated it with being such a like a good person a nice person a kind person that I feel like it was more it's more difficult to tell somebody like hey like that's racist behavior or like this is shitty behavior and and let's examine it from a different angle part of part of the problem just in general of having these conversations is we've been talking about racism and what that looks like incorrectly for many years we think of somebody racist is like just this very almost caricature of usually like an older white person who's just like get off my lawn and I'm gonna use the n-word too it's this very like right. once the race is like you can pick them out of a crowd you know who they are they're easy to shun um when in fact racism is like as you said it's it's something that you are complicit in if you're not actively anti-racist right. and you have to be anti-racist at all times and that comes to a point where you have to be the person who's having the hard conversations you're the person who is willing to be the unfun person at a party when somebody says something incredibly racist you're the one who you know has to deal with the possible ramifications of like your family yeah. stepping away from you it's right. very hard and like to your point of realizing how complicit you are it never stops <laughs> It never, I mean, never stops. Yeah. The, the thing about, it feels very scary at first, but if you like realize the depth that it hits and what it means, which is just the number of people who die because of racism, mm -hmm. there's like, a, you start panicking, panicking as if like, that's your survival on, on the line as well, because it is. <laughs> Right. Our oppressions, if one person is oppressed, you are in fact oppressing all of us because why is that person oppressed? The question you should always ask is why until you can't ask why anymore. So why, what, who is gaining from the oppression of someone? Because we don't just oppress people for the fun of it. <laughs> it is right. it's a system that's supporting itself. And if you really get down, if you start asking that and pulling threads, Part of what's happening is a lot of people are being catapulted to a place where they realize that all of our systems are a scam. Uh, hashtag the scam is structural. Yeah. And that's sort of vaulting us to a place where all of it is a scam. <laughs> all of it. And, and it's all of these ideas that we've just agreed upon, right? Like they're not hard and fast rules. They're not facts. Yeah. They're not things have been, that have been around forever. You know, one example being the police as we know it, right? Like it's not this institutional thing that's always existed as it is now and operates in the, in the way that there's no other way to do it. And so I think that's a part of the, this myth of the scam of, of there are other there are other ways, despite what a lot of people would like you to believe. There are other options, and, and everybody can thrive in those other options. Right. It's just a lot of the things that we accept as must exist as the police are just because of failure of imagination. <laughs> right, because right. We just literally have either been instructed not to imagine a world where, say, we have access to healthcare. Like, yeah. what are your objections? I want you to first imagine a world where you can go to a doctor and if you are sick, you're not gonna get bankrupt. Like, I don't wanna hear <laughs> yet right. what you think the roadblocks are to this. I want you to imagine that world. And I want you to right. spin it out and tell me how many more people are alive, how less stressed you are. Just yeah. play that out. 
though I would like to go back really quickly to something I was saying about where you come to a place where like it feels like it's your survival too I didn't want to leave that on that note because it sounds very much yeah. I'm centering myself what I mean mm -hmm. is like you get a place where like the fact that my black trans sisters are disappearing at an alarming rate and nobody's saying anything the fact that nobody hears that or sees that and doesn't immediately insist that we stop doing that. Like it's, it get, you get to a point where it just seems so clear that we should all care so deeply about everybody just because they exist. Because right. if you come to a place where the only value that we have is like our experience here on this world, on this earth right now, it makes every single person unique in the world. If you think about it, in order to replicate yourself, every single element of this world has to be exactly the same in order for you to continue being the person that you are slash will be. Right. So every single person is inherently unique. And so every single person who's on this world matters just inherently. And the fact that we have built a world that tells us that we should devalue people for any reason we need to tear down whatever systems are insisting that we believe that way. Sure. And like, when you get yeah. to that point, tell me what we're, tell me ultimately what we're tearing down and what we're left with. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, right. 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 Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, you go down <laughs> pretty far and, and, and it becomes quite obvious. Um, so I, I guess I, I'd love to just touch quickly a little bit and going back of, how did you get to the place of actually making this a job? Because I, th I think you worked in, in like more of the corporate side of, of development at an actual studio. Am I correct? In yeah, that? I was at a, well, I was at a development, a VP of development okay. at a production company, um, working for other bosses. And it just, it's just getting to the point where I didn't want to work on sort of other people's favorite projects and really wanted to start concentrating on my own and, uh, I could have more control over sort of the message that we were sending and stuff like that. So I left and up until that point, I had developed a sort of reputation for reading in this manner and having a very specific lens through which I would give certain notes. So I had a friend of mine who's a producer who had a project that's a very funny, raunchy, uh, <laughs> R-rated college comedy starring two women. But uh, everybody who, the writers, the directors, and the producers who are currently attached were all men. So he specifically wanted me to read it for any sort of problematic or inauthentic comment, content from a sort of female perspective. Right. And then I was like, this has to be a job. <laughs> like, this just has to be a job. <laughs> and so I started doing sure. some research, and it is a job. It's a job that orient, uh, originates in the sort of young adult book lit side of things oh the young adult okay. audience is pretty amazing they are very very um tuned in to what books are saying and what they're trying to sort of sell them in the sense like what is your book about what are you trying to teach me or model for me mm -hmm. and uh what happened is like there would be these books that would be these huge touted expected releases and there would be something incredibly problematic in them and the young adult community would basically just be like, nope, nope, we're not, we're not here for that. We will read your book, but not if this is what's going to be supported, not if you're going to be anti-trans, not if you're going to 
include this problematic content and not actually sit with the ramifications of it. Mm -hmm. um, and so a bunch of people started sort of popping up as sensitivity readers. Um, and that can take multiple different sort of umbrellas, as it were. You have a lot of people recognize authenticity or expert readers as jobs. So that's like if you had a medical show and you went and you got right. a medical doctor to come in and talk to you about the medicine. That's an authenticity reader. That's somebody who I usually use that to mean, uh, or an expert reader, I usually use expert reader to mean somebody who has acquired a skill. Like they've trained for a long time, they've acquired a skill set, they've worked in a job. It's something that uh, very much opens. It's, it's more about the skill as opposed to, uh, I'm specifically a trans person in the medical field. Um, that would be more of what I would call an authenticity read, which is more based in culture and experiences that not everybody is going to have inherent access to. Like that's when you need to, when you're sort of telling a story outside of your lane, bring that person in to make sure that you're, you know, not stepping. Reflecting. Mm -hmm. Basically set yourself up for success because nobody knows more about the stories that they, they want to see and they're told about them than the people out there who are going to be your consumers right so uh, it just makes sense to ask in sort of the same way we're starting to think part of what's going on is we're starting to think of culture as something as sort of similarly weighted as a skill we're starting to mm. think of culture in a critical sense instead of just kind of letting culture happen to us in a form mm. collective sense I think because I've witnessed in this in the film industry since this has happened boards I've been on with people really start to take themselves and each other to task for sort of casually problematic language, casually problematic mm. um, things that normally wouldn't go remarked unless uh, there's a lot of these boards that have safe spaces for members of color so that they can, if they're feeling like their needs are not being served on the main board, they have a safe space there, but that's not fair because the main board is so much bigger and has so much more access to content that right you know, the, the solution is still based on the problem, which is why that systematic, like systematic issues have to come from, have systematic solutions. You can't fix them on a one-to-one, -one. like you can do that work one-on-one, -on -one, but you can't fix the whole of it unless everyone is doing it. Right. And you can't wait for systems to fix themselves. You can't insist that the people who are being impressed continue to be oppressed, like how much right. longer? <laughs> Right. Well, and, and putting it on them to somehow make the change and educate, whereas the people in power and in privilege need to spear, you know, that movement. Right. Because other, otherwise change doesn't happen, except if if the people allow it, right? You truly come to a place where you are dedicated to being anti-racist. Yeah. You can't help but surround yourself with the content needed to help you decolonize your thoughts. And it's not even just educational material. It's not just black authors writing about being black in this world. It's black writers writing to other black writers about the joy of being black and mm -hmm. recognizing that this isn't inherently for you, but there's so much joy in accessing that joy. And like, yeah. if, it feel, if it feels uncomfortable and foreign for a little while, just ask, keep asking the question like, why? Why does it feel uncomfortable and foreign? And then just keep reading until it doesn't. <laughs> right, like, right, the yeah. solutions to these are also very easy and they're not all like rip your soul out version of therapy 
sometimes it's the like, man, I've had a breakthrough and I've listened to some like a rap artist and I understand rap now. Like I get, I understand rap because that's such a huge genre, but like for the first time you found something to connect to because you put yourself in a place to realize that like all rap is not for you, but like, what about Saul Williams? He's poetry emotion. He's beautiful. Like you can always find like part of it is that fundamental like if you think about what I just said the implied basis of that is people think that all rap is the same and sounds the same that's a based in right. based in racism sure like right right of course so it's just it's about recognizing those little moments and you can be incredibly revolutionary in your tiny moments where nobody sees that's where you should be the most revolutionary or the quiet moments where nobody sees uh, right and I, I think that's the most interesting part of a social media you know me forward particularly in this country right of like I'm the most important thing my visibility is the most important thing if I can't put it on social media and and I have to say I even personally struggle with this right like this idea of like getting a pat on the back for doing a good job or like being anti-racist or you know whatever in the moment you know this that's not a trend but but this idea of this culture that we've created of this like vicious cycle of me 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 I'm the most important that has you know burgeoned and 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 grown out of this systemic system that really prizes that well this is why in a Christian tradition pride is really the only sin that you cannot free yourself from because every other sin you can alleviate yourself from you can take yourself out of the system but pride in your actions pride in you doing the thing that you should do or the, the right thing you can't avoid that but what you can do is you can really interrogate your own reasoning you can interrogate your own drive to do something you can make sure that your intentions are not only coming from a good place, but you understand deeply why the action that you are doing is helpful and not actively problematic. It, it's, it's hard because there is that sense, like one of the, the, one of the most gratifying things that's ever happened, happened very recently where um, I, one of my collaborators is a director from Argentina and uh, we went to a film festival together where we met another director who was there with this like really incredible movie, like just a beautiful movie. And she was talking to us about her grandmother and how much pride she had in her grandmother who was a suffragette and how she fought for the right for women to vote. And I went for white women. And there, the table got very quiet and got tense. And she was what? And I was like, well, your grandmother fought for the right for white women to vote. And I saw the moment where she felt like very much that I had attacked her and attacked her grandmother and I knew it was coming, but I also knew that we needed to have that conversation because she, she, she does believe that. And like, it doesn't devalue anything that her grandmother did It totally. in context, what she did not do. And it reminds right. us that when we celebrate the hundredth anniversary of women's right to vote, it's not women's right to vote. It's white women's right to vote. And it does matter. Like our history matters. And part of that 
is holding ourselves accountable, but we also have to hold other people accountable in this uncomfortable way. And I knew that it was gonna make every single person at that table uncomfortable, but we were gonna have that conversation. And I was potentially gonna lose a, a, a very well-established contact in that moment. And I knew my director was uncomfortable as well, but she kind of just let me sort of do my thing. And the woman ended up, um, like that kind of ended up with me going like, I feel like you're very upset about this. And I would really just love you to, when you have a moment, think about what made you so upset about that. Because here's the thing, if your grandmother did in fact fight for the rights of black women to vote during that time, she is truly one of a kind and incredible. Like you can actually hold her up, but the majority like suffragette, suffragette, suffragette actually worked because the white women actually threw the black women under the bus. So the likelihood that she went along with that at the very least and like, we can't know her opinions. We can't know if she just went along with it, but going along with it is accepting the premise. So there's no fundamental difference there. Sure. So that's kind of how we, we left it. And my director actually, after sort of like a couple weeks into the Black Lives Matter movement, actually called me up and was like, I recognize the importance of that conversation. Mm-hmm. And that was one of those things where I'm like, oh, like sometimes these things, these conversations do work. And that was incredibly gratifying but also where's the next one (laughs) where's the next conversation having so totally you really come to a point where just it's not even there's not even a prize of any kind you just you have to do it you just can't not do it because not doing it is so bad (laughs) and feels so so icky um as well uh, so I'd like I'd love to get into you know originally when we had this conversation, uh, primarily in the beginning of this year when I was doing episodes, a lot of it was focused on consent and um, you know assault and rape and female projections on screen, and now I also realize it was very white centered. Um, you know, particularly from my viewpoint and like how how we talk about that on screen. And obviously now the the magnitude of the conversations that we're having and how to represent people in an authentic way and stories in an authentic way in in the media is and in entertainment is is shifting in a beautiful way. But I'm curious about like what what part are you playing in that conversation and what what are the conversations now shifting you know because I I think we've used particularly black indigenous people of color as like set pieces in storytelling you know in a lot of ways and 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 I would say women too you know I, I think we're sort of moving out of that but you know I guess what what has what have you seen that's shifting and how are you a part of the conversation of, of moving these conversations and having more authentic representation? Um, so I actually think this conversation isn't so far off from our one for consent because I, sure. I honestly think consent is the bedrock of everything. What you're ultimately asking, like if there's one question that you should always ask is, is anyone being harmed? Mm-hmm. But you have to really understand what constitutes harm. Harm. It's like when you kind of 
try and talk to some people and they want to argue the semantics of the definition of something and you're just like um can we talk about the actual practical applicate like what happens to people if you really boil it down you're if you don't want to do harm you you that's a place of empathy of, of a lot of empathy especially in a system that wants you to not ask that question doing it with sort of that thought in mind you kind of naturally like I have a I have a friend who's a writer and he's a very good writer and he has such a beautiful outlook on the world I don't know quite how his parents managed it but they mm -hmm. raised like a very decent kid who has a lot of empathy but he is blind to a lot of these things I don't even want to say blind because that fairly ableist language but he he definitely um has not like been trained to see some of it so mm -hmm. he naturally doesn't write it because it's not his worldview and he understands enough not to to avoid problematic patterns in his own writing but then we'll get into sort of real life conversations and i'll have to explain something to him that i'm just like it's very rare to see the disconnect where you don't write it in your writing, but you don't actually understand how it works in the real world. Sure. That's yeah, it's just an avoidance. Most people can't, <laughs> don't manage that. And it's most of the time, like I can, I can know a lot about a person's personal outlook just by reading certain things and scripts. Mm -hmm. But it gives me the starting place of, okay, so I know how to, I know the end to start talking to you about that. Because that is what a lot of this ends up being, is conversations with people about their own biases. Because it's right. always easier to pick out somebody else's biases than your own. Though I have definitely been like, ooh, I see echoes of this in my own writing. For example, right. or for example, like this is how important sensitivity readers are and how insidious the culture is. So uh, I was actually on a different podcast and as I was sort of getting in the groove of something and kind of ripping i was looking for a way to kind of suggest this the lowest point on a hierarchy and i said lowest man on totem pole and then immediately stopped myself like on the podcast stopped myself and went oh shouldn't have said that i'm not sure why i said that like i know that that's not how totem poles work totem poles don't have a lowest man on the totem pole except in like a very literal sense it's not sure. thing. like I deeply know this and it's not a part of my vocabulary. So I just, I kind of called it out in, on the podcast. And then later on, as I was thinking about it, I realized because I kind of naturally categorize these things. I'd, I'd heard it twice on two different shows within about a five day period. And that was enough to pop the colloquial meaning up to sort of the forefront of my brain. So it was just sitting there and I didn't have my filters on enough. So that kind of like same rigorous thought pattern and just acknowledgement is you can do that on scripts. It's right. more trained sort of a thing. It comes from just having read a lot of scripts and being very deeply invested in script structure and having just a deep knowledge of movies that have existed, movies that have actually existed sort of in the seams and slipped through the industry. A uh, lot, a lot of the great '90s lesbian homemade videos. Um, really submerging myself in stories that weren't mainstream and traditional, and seeing like what was cool. How did they do that? Why did they do that? Yeah, mainstream wants you to tell a certain kind of story for a reason. 
Mm. Who are those people who actually had such a driving story that they managed to kind of bulk the system and tell something and something that has so profoundly spoken to so many people? What is that? Why is that? Can you talk about some specific examples? Um, one of my sort of favorite go-tos is uh, I was working on a script for a client that involved IVF and artificial insemination. And so that is a just hotbed of consent issues on multiple levels. Mm-hmm. We don't have good laws that have kept up with our reproductive technology, and I wouldn't necessarily trust those laws in the first place. But there was one throwaway line <laughs> in the script that was done by one of the characters that really had no bearing on anything else. It was really half a joke, half kind of serious, and very much a thing that I have heard this kind of character say. And that was, you know, I've opted not to have kids because I don't want to contribute to overpopulation. And most people would just hear that and be like, okay, that makes sense. And I heard that and was like, oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no, you don't realize what you just did there. So I always have a conversation beforehand before I read your script or know anything more than just the generals about it because I want to get to know you as a person. I want you to hear my voice because I have a pretty specific way of speaking and phrasing things. So uh, I like people to have my voice in their head when they're reading things that I've written or notes or something. <laughs> sure. So I had talked to her and I got a really good sense of her worldview and her outlook and what her intent was behind this project because again I care deeply about authorial intent in a way that I do not once you have unleashed your work into the world and it is a baby bird flying. <laughs> sure. I will happily be that hawk who's like, oh, <laughs> I'm gonna eat you now. Yeah. <laughs> um, at this point, you're still like inviting people in, inviting other viewpoints. And so far in right. this specific work, I haven't had to work with somebody who is really against what I do. I've definitely worked with people who have not really known like what this relationship is because this is very much based on trust we're digging into some really really hard things to talk about sometimes and like sometimes i can watch a a thread start to unravel and i'm just like oh i don't know if i'm the right person to be here for you when you have this revelation but uh, (laughs) yeah like sometimes i can watch it happen and it's just kind of one of those things where i'm just trying to be like but like you, you did, you took the first step, you asked for help, we're here together. Part of it is you have to trust m- my worldview as well. Like you have to trust sure. me and what I'm saying. And I'm always very, my first default is I don't want you to listen to what I have to say. I want you to listen to uh, a primary source. I want to direct you part of my job, a huge part of my job is summarizing, like here's broadly why this is problematic so that you can access it. Here are people that you should read who are like, members of whatever community you're talking about or somebody who has this life experience but this is the sort of viewpoint that you're trying to mimic in your writing i really don't want it to be my voice only um sure right i was actually going to bring that up you know as a white person and particularly in the the lens that we're at right now um that was part of my question and that idea of 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 you know 
packaging it in a way of like these are the areas to look at and then here are other resources so that it's a really well-rounded right. research and investigated intent of, of figuring out like okay well how do how how is this best represented and authentically portrayed yeah it's it's my notes and when I do a sensitivity read are half like actual story notes and then half just here's a whole bunch of reading and I intentionally pick people who have really unique and interesting viewpoints. Like uh, I'm getting this from somewhere. Very little of what I do is just stuff that I made up. <laughs> I'm sure, <laughs> sure. you're not working in a vacuum. <laughs> like there are people who right. are doing such good work uh, and I'm just like doing the thing where I'm like, I can summarize this really well and make it like, make you laugh while I do it. And then I'm gonna send you some right. links. And like, you don't realize you signed up for both a PhD and therapy. <laughs> right. Yeah. So. so in terms of that IVF project, um, I think you were talking about a specific instance in terms of, of that. Oh, the global um, right, so population. The global, we, we don't actually have an overpopulation problem. We make more than enough food to feed every single person in the world. That is a problem with capitalism. That is a problem with the fact that we insist that food has a monetary value and that people should be able to pay that monetary value. And then we don't ensure that people can actually afford food, which they need to live. <laughs> mm -hmm. We could solve world hunger if we just decided to distribute food appropriately. We do not have an overpopulation problem. Framing it as an overpopulation problem shifts the conversation and the blame to primarily poor people in colonized countries that have been intentionally left with destroyed infrastructure and tries to make it a problem of like education and lack of access and resources when really uh, right. we can, you created can the as problem. much education as you want, but it, we're not actually addressing what is causing that problem right and it's not a problem you should have as many children as you genuinely want to have but that is another conversation that like gets into uh, how oppressions intersect and like there's a lot of influences that go on certain certain very impoverished groups having a lot of children sure uh, sure so uh, uh and access to care and potential, you know, other methods and barriers and, 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 and what right, have but you. We're but... also really ignoring the decades and centuries of colonization and specifically Catholicism that teaches women that their happiness lies in having a bunch of kids. So like you can't simultaneously tell these women that this is what's going to make you happy and then try and teach them like, but you shouldn't have so many kids because overpopulation, like, Cool. right think of that like think of that is literally what we're doing <laughs> and like man I feel gross yeah we are a society of of hypocrisies of of things we want people to believe that then don't follow ourselves or you know the thing these, is these... the hypocrisies once you know what you're looking for they're really they don't they're not trying to hide they're right there they're That's right there on yeah. the surface like Right. We all just need a look. <laughs> yeah. Keep pulling the threads and keep asking why, everybody. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> the biggest thing you actually want you to do and then, like, live your life. <laughs> so in terms of content happening right now, you know, I, I wonder if you can talk to this at all. In terms of, I feel like a lot of 
feedback or criticism of, you know, sort of the work that you do, but this larger conversation of incorporating more voices and 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 talking about how to accurately and authentically represent people like does that stifle the creative process and does it, you know, hamper what can can be created? Um, and and I feel like obviously no um, and, and what beauty in bringing about more stories. But I if you could talk to that and then particularly what's happening now, if you've seen any any new things that have come about of uh, I imagine every writer and every movie and series coming out that had had been slated to film or come out is like, oh, fuck, we have to go way back. We're having, you know, there's like a lot of things to discuss. And that's in my head of how I would imagine it's going. But p- perhaps you have a different insight. I don't know. Well, it's a s- slower process than that. Um, you have to convince everyone at the top to accept some of these changes. Because essentially what sensitivity reading does is it's a stopgap for getting those voices, those really unique voices into positions of power within the current existing structures. Like that is essentially what I'm doing. Because one thing that we're really starting to look at is, oh, these diversity initiatives, why haven't they worked? Well, somebody finally asked the questions and then there's like a whole bunch of people who are like, uh, we've been trying to tell you why they don't work for a really long time. And then it ends up being structural. So what you end up having is these diversity initiatives that either on the writing side, sometimes they'll pay for your salary in a room for a year, but that's not helpful necessarily. Like you get your first season short, but you're not going to get that second season because all of a sudden that room has to now pay for you and you're no longer free. So what you've kind of set up is your Mm -hmm. diverse writers who, yeah, they're going to start, they need to learn, but you've actually set up a barrier unintentionally to them getting that second season to getting that next job. Like unless you really carry through and give for directors, it should be three episodes of TV shows because one isn't enough one is hard, two is incredibly hard. And once you hit three, you're kind of going to get cat, you're going to get hired down the line. But like, okay, so those diversity initiatives, they need to expand. Some of the writers initiatives, like, okay, you say you like me, you say you want to develop me. Well, put up or shut up. Like we're beyond the point where it's just have us sit in rooms and be told about these really established people's stellar careers and how they broke in 30 years ago. How does that help me now? So people have started actually sort of speaking truth to power. I have a friend who got one of these, like really, I don't know if it's even been announced. It's so sort of internal, but he was basically told that he had too much experience but he he had sold a lot of stuff but nothing had actually like tripped over and he kind of got quiet and he's not a confrontational person but he just kind of stood in his power and was like so let me get this straight you really really like me and you think I'm great but I have too much experience for your program that is supposed to break out writers when I am standing right here and you're telling me hey I wish that you were a writer who had broken out if that's true, why waste my time? Sure. And then he hung up and they were, and that he, he spoke through the power and they were like, fuck, you're right. 
And so that's how he got himself uh, a, a writer's gig. And like, I sincerely hope he doesn't hate me. Oh no, no, I'm afraid I told this story. <laughs> but like, I was really proud of him because he really went out of his comfort zone in order to make right. other people discomforted and make like shape them out of their complacence and it worked for him and I was so happy for him. Yeah. But that was like a huge risk. But then he was like, well, I mean, I've done so many of these and I've done so many of these interviews and I've like been the person who didn't have enough experience and then passed straight over into having too much experience. Like, right. what do you want from me? It just seems like a constant trap and like, yeah. It's right. true, but that's that's the constant trap that we lay with these diversity initiatives that don't actually look at the impact. This is where intent, if your impact doesn't match your intent, it doesn't matter. Your intent does not matter because your impact is what stands in the world. So you right. have somebody who, like, if I was setting up one of these initiatives, have somebody who's been through it, ask them what was great, ask them what was bad, and actually listen to them and be willing to change. <laughs> Right. I think that being willing to change is such a huge part of it. And I imagine you come up against it in your work as well as when people ask you for help. And then, but it has to be a willingness to receive and shift as opposed to just wanting to get a pat on the back and be like, this is great. You did a good job. You know, you're screwed. Right. Because nobody should be congratulating you for doing the decent thing because, like, truly this path of like trying to be anti-racist is you you have to do it purely because you can't not do it <laughs> right you, you have to come to a place where you're doing it for the sake of doing it for your fellow man because there's no reward there's nothing at the end of it other than i want to go out from this world having made this place this this space this world a demonstrably safer place for as many people as i possibly can like that yeah. is my goal <laughs> Um, and I'd love to talk quickly about like what is your particular lens because I think I think you sort of laid it out in terms of your early um, like childhood experience with with Christianity um, but the the lens that you bring and and then the worldview that you're you're talking about is it is it that like critical constantly asking why or is there more more to that landscape? I mean, there's always more to every landscape sure. and it's always complex. Um, I, so I guess my lens is personally, uh, I'm a white, bi-pan, <laughs> non-binary, queer person. Sometimes I really doubt that I'm a person, but I can <laughs> tell you what I am. But, um, <laughs> I guess that's that's it. I've very much come to a place in my own sort of conception of the world where uh, gender isn't really a thing in that it is a thing that we have all collectively agreed on and that's really cool. But the only person who can tell you what your gender is, is you. Like that's my criteria is what gender are you? And sure. I'm here for it. And I will stand in front of anyone who tries to tell you you're not that gender. And I have a have a lot of questions for them they probably can't answer when they start trying to tell me what they think your gender is. Uh, it's sure. a very fun party <laughs> trick that I really enjoy <laughs> pulling out from time yeah. to time. <laughs> <laughs> um, what does bi, pan, is, is that bisexual, pan, is that what that was short for? Yeah, so um, 
the really broadly, bisexual means that generally speaking, gender plays some sort of role in your attraction. So like somebody who might be like, I'm mostly attracted to, to guys um, and then sort of attracted to femmes, but like sometimes there's a spectrum. It doesn't suggest necessarily a duality, sort of hitting the limitations of language, whereas pansexuality is gender just isn't a consideration. Like I'm very much into the person. Um, the reason that I attach the bi to it is because we live in a not great world that is not uh, one of affirmative consent. Um, based on past experiences, I'm just kind of naturally a little more wary of cis men and cis het men in particular, just uh, in a perfect world, I, I really, really deeply wouldn't care uh, in the way that I would absolutely respect and deeply care about you and your presentation, but like it wouldn't, it, I would be surprised that you wanted to discuss gender probably, like it was not <laughs> something that I was ever considering other than like making sure people treat you like a human being of your choice. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's what and, and what does gender queer mean? I think based on our last conversation, there was a definition that I actually didn't know. Uh, gender queer is kind of, it addresses and acknowledges a real spectrum of gender fuckery that can go on. Um, <laughs> I love gender, gender fuckery. fuckery. <laughs> Great term. So gender queer does like really, I don't think there's really a, a term for what I am or what I am not. I just kind of like me and I'm totally fine with that. Like I don't feel the need to sort of dig in. I've never felt really drawn to either one. My conception of gender was literally, okay, y'all have told me that girls like this and boys do this. And yet I do a mess of things. So I am neither. Mm. And like literally that was it. I was like, that's fine. I don't. I'm really okay because this all seems very dramatic and I would really like to opt <laughs> of the pink and I would like to opt into the like soccer and football. Um, sure. And I'm definitely not a boy. <laughs> like I've seen it. I'm not a boy. So uh, that was most of the time when I found things that like were directly contradictory and my question always came back to who does this harm? Like my gender harms nobody. Not even sure. Me. Yeah, you can try and convince me that my gender har harms me, but I'm gonna laugh at your face the whole time. You probably like, <laughs> sure. take shots whenever you say something deeply dumb that's not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, like silently taking shots. In the I'm just sitting there, like, man, line them up and make them half water, please. <laughs> so funny. Um, um. So yeah, and then I take a more in the sensitivity reading, a more academic approach, meaning like I'm really. My notes are very narrow cast to the story you're telling and how it's going to hit in the world. So like I'll explain the metaphor of your story and I really try not to go out of that lane. Um, and I'm pretty, pretty good at that, like of staying within the structure of what you're trying to do and just making, again, making sure that intent matches. And that's what sensitivity readers, like people who are starting to use that as a term, we can encompass two spaces. There's the sort of more academic space where I just have a lot of experience in these stories and I can tell you how to how to fix this from a perspective like there's the perspective you need um or there you don't you don't need a perspective that is not mine essentially like part of my job is to recognize like I am not the voice that you need here <laughs> let me uh, I have a pretty developed network of people who who trust me 
um, to sort of keep my word and like tell them how it is. So I'll reach out. I've definitely, I've done this in the past where I reach out to people and I'm like, hey, there's somebody who's looking for specifically this voice or I read the script. I always read the scripts before I pass them on because uh, I might not need be the voice you ultimately need, but I might need to be an interim voice or sure. right. there is value in having white people talk to other white people about racism. Totally. But that conversation should always just really be with the like, how am I narrow casting to like viewpoint? Like we should always be asking ourselves like, what are we missing? Like, who, what, what would be better served by having a voice that is not a white person, which is generally a lot. <laughs> a lot, yeah, yeah. Um, um, I, I don't know if, if you can speak to this at all either. I know, you know, there have been multiple uh, animation shows that have come out where they had a half black, half white character um, and they were being played by a white person or voiced by a white person. Um, you know, Halle Berry just finally turned down a role with re- within recent time of a transgender person, you know, can you speak to when you're talking about these characters and not only writing them but bringing them to life how important it is to have authenticity in the representation of the actual being as well and and because I don't I don't necessarily know if before like in, integral in the conversation was like what that experience brings to both in the writing and the performance and all aspects of the production to to like grounding it in histories of truth right like you're not just getting this like superficial thing it's more more depth well I mean Halle Berry in particular misgendered the character in her when she was talking about it so that was a huge sign that like this is not going to go well, but also you're, you don't really understand truly why you've mm-hmm. been asked to step away from this role. This is mostly a PR move, which is, I think, important to show that we're getting to the point where, like, even if this is a PR move, we still uh, avoided this sort of happening. Um, to the animation point, like, this is sort of part of that racism is structural. It's not even just a problem of representation behind the camera because a lot of people are like, well, you can't even see them. How does it matter? Well, it, it matters beyond the artistic conversation, which like, um, it's fairly subjective. Let's, let's actually avoid that and talk about how by not casting people of color, by not casting people who are biracial in the same way your character is or black, you're actually keeping money out of that community. So it's not even just that there's no representation in the writer's room or the directing side of things. All of that is money. And in our current capitalist society, the way that we show value for things is money. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So this problem is actually one of like a snowballing escalating effect because you're not hiring these people to tell their own stories. You're definitely not letting them tell stories of like quote unquote mainstream white people. Right. Um, and then, so, and then if you look at the Venn diagram of the same thing goes, if you're a woman, you're not invited to tell those masculine stories. You can tell women's stories, but even the quote unquote women's stories get told by men. Men. Yeah. So if you're a black director who is a woman, uh, that is 
the Venn diagram of a really, really two shitty circles. And the term that's being used right now is misogynoir. And so this is one of the reasons like you can't equate racism and sexism. You can't equate these things to each other because it inherently erases the group of people who exist at the junction of those two things and have to deal with both of those things. Mm. Um, so for example, there's a whole group of people that we're not talking about right now who are also disabled <laughs> who fit in that program. Sure. And so right. like trying to keep all of these things is even for me who is like, I'm trying to make a career out of it. It's hard and I'm constantly second guessing myself. I'm constantly trying to figure out how can I make sure nothing falls through the cracks? How can I make sure that I'm not substituting my voice for a voice that needs and deserves to be heard over mine? Part of that is keeping a running list of people both in my head and just in my circle because uh, I do truly have friends who like, if I can throw them these scripts, I make sure that they know like the people who I'm passing them on to, you will be paying this person. Sure, and, like, yeah, you're paying them more for me because like you're actually digging into their authentic experiences in a way like I can talk to you about certain things with a measure of distance to them because that's part of my privilege. That's part of how I can also leverage my privilege is by like, this is not going to hit me in the same way that it's going to hit somebody of a certain group or something. So if I can take that first round of shrapnel, as it were, mm. and try and alleviate it, and then if necessary, turn around to someone and be like, hey, uh, essentially, let me give you a content warning or a trigger warning. And like, here's, here's where this started. Here's where I have taken it. Are you willing to work with this person for the monies? And like, no, I am not is a hundred percent always an option. Uh, sure. Because a lot, and a lot of what I do is like very much, I, I go in with this, like, I want, I'm here with you. I'm here on this journey with you. I'm taking the opportunity to explore my own biases at the same time. We're like talking about yours because if I can't, if I don't understand something, I can't explain it to you. And my ultimate goal is to make sure that people walk away even more educated than they came in because if you, if I need you to undo the problematic nature in your script, you need to first understand why it's problematic and how it operates in order for you to fix it. Otherwise, you're just going to keep doing the same thing because that's how unconscious bias works. Right. So what I essentially do is like I point out logic errors. Is, a, is mostly what I'm doing, kind of how it works of like, here's why this doesn't compute. Like, here's why you've been tricked into thinking it works. Sure. Here's actually why it does not compute. And here's the thing, your solution is always gonna be cooler than what you initially did. Like I have yet to have a client walk away and just be like, man, this, this story is more boring. Like no, your story is inherently more interesting because you've rooted it in character. You've rooted it like, generally back into a theme. Generally, we determine like, oh, you wanted to talk about like families and what it takes to continue to be a family in the midst of a disaster. Well, if we know that, we know exactly how everyone should behave because like, here's the little shitty brother who's just like scared that the older brother is going to college and the older brother feels stifled. Like we can start playing with those roles and make sure that we're really rooting if as long as it's in character, you're gonna be okay. <laughs> Yeah. This is also presupposing I, that this story is not, there's a difference between telling a story that has characters from groups that you're not a part of and telling the stories of those groups. <laughs> sure, right, right. So like it's, if you're trying to tell a story of a group 
and I am not part of that group. I am inherently the wrong person for you. Right. Um, but uh, my first question for people would be, uh, why are you telling this story? How is the story better served by you telling it than a person who is from that background, who knows that intimately? And then what steps are you taking to make sure that you're doing correct by them? And like a lot of people are going to hear that and think that means you always have to be nice or you always have to be a good character, like good as in the value of good characters as opposed to good, like that's just a really good character. Right. No, like have, com what we're actually saying is have complicated characters who are uh, Mexican gang uh, gangsters. So if I get that script, because I've had that script before, my first thing that I do is like, do you know why gangs exist? And the answer is what? And I'm like, no, no, no. like literally, why do gangs exist? Because everything exists for a reason. Nothing just happens in a vacuum. And I get, what? And I get to go on this like TED talk, this 30 minute TED talk of how gangs and mobsters and mafias all come from groups who are not being serviced well or fairly by the governments and the power structures at large. So like, you can still have your gang movie, but like, we're gonna have a conversation about the complexities of that gang behavior. I'm gonna link you to blogs of people who are actively gang members. I'm going to link you to blogs of people who have gotten out of lifestyle. I'm gonna link you to blogs that like, actually make you consider from an on the ground perspective why, who these people are, why they exist. Like, a lot of racism is trying to convince you that people either don't or shouldn't exist. And I'm kind of doing the opposite of being like, okay, I mean, if you're going to write these people, then I'm going to make you like do the research you should have done already. And sure. It's going to be my, I'm going to be curating, like my power comes in curating like the voices that you get shown, <laughs> which is yeah. power. Like let's not under, let's not undersell the amount of power that I do have there in shaping someone's narrative. Yeah. Um, well, and I, I feel like we could benefit from that just in society in general. And I do hope, you know, as artists and as being a mirror for society, we, we have the opportunity to start showcasing the shifting of conversation even more so and, 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 and acting as an example for behavior, right? Like the more that we take into consideration our own biases and work on ourselves and then project those out into the larger public, it, it matters. Um, how can people find you um, if they if they're interested in your services or just knowing more about you and what you do and and the lovely human that you are? So I'm uh, my socials on Instagram and Twitter are at Alixa A L E E K Z A, uh, and then I have a website which is alexcresswick.com where I kind of outline what sensitivity reading is if you're interested in getting a little bit of a more in-depth overview of it amazing and we'll put that in the show notes too um 
I, we could talk for so many more hours. Um, so we'll have this to do a part two. But a topic that you never run out of things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but I am eternally grateful for you coming back for a second episode, um, especially, you know, amongst all of this craziness. But it's so wonderful to see your face and hear your voice and, <laughs> and to just even know that you're on the ground floor and like all the impact that you're making. And I, I know I learned so much from you. So, so thank you so much for your time. I mean, I'm trying and I'm really trying to ring in the anxiety of like, <laughs> this, this work is incredibly anxious for me and just like, yeah. man, it, uh, whew. but you know, you gotta do it and it's never not interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that true? Oh my God. Well, yay, we did yay. it. <laughs> oh boy. Boy. Oh boy. Boy, oh, oh boy. boy. Oh, 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 um, well, Alex, thank you so much for coming back on uh, to interview and share your wisdom uh, and and just like all of your knowledge and your example out in the world and all the cool work that you're doing. I, I feel really honored that you were willing to come back for a second time and hopefully yeah. back again because I feel like as we progress through this time everything is changing on a on a day's notice so uh there's gonna be even more shifts and considerations um and also truthfully moving into a space of being an anti-racist uh which i think is new for a lot of us is is a lot and tricky and um i think it's helpful to have guides who have been in this work for a while um and especially other white people who are standing as an example um, and offering guidance uh, because the burden does not fall onto our black indigenous uh, and fellow people of color. Yep. So, yeah. Um, awkward pause into <laughs> follow us on social media <laughs> at Finding My Young Podcast on uh, Facebook and Instagram for updates behind the scenes, little clips of the shows. Um, yeah, and to just engage with us on a deeper level, we love to hear from you. Yeah, you can email us at findingmyyum at gmail.com. Reach out to us with guest ideas, uh, feedback, um, topics you might want to hear us cover. Uh, we love yes. all that kind of uh, participation from the community. Um, and honestly, if you have a good idea, I'm sure it'll end up uh, on a podcast feed soon. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yes, and then please um, rate, subscribe, and share. Um, you know, put that five-star rating. It really helps us. If you leave a comment, it also really helps us. And Will, how many people should they share the podcast with this week? You know, I was just thinking you might ask me that, and it's kind of <laughs> tough because, like, now I feel like I had to say a number higher than the last numbers we said, or it's going to well, be that like... that was high. It was high, but it also feels like it would be rude to this guest you say oh well last week's you should have shared with this many people and this week only 32 um, no we're not taking a judgment value it's just like oscillating between i know i know a certain, you know like large amounts and then taking i'm just saying there's more break. pressure on this that i was putting on you than i even realized i'm gonna say 51 <laughs> thank you for your acknowledgement of my but struggle. it's not a reflection 51. on alex it's just no. uh 
Because with the 51, though, I think we can make the caveat of, like, have an in-depth conversation with those people, whereas with the 191 from last week, just send it to them, say a hello, but this time take the opportunity to really, like, ask how your friends are, how these people are doing, and what the podcast makes them feel and think. Yeah, so this one more uh, quality shares over quantity. There we go. I like yeah, it. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, we love you. We're appreciative of you being a part of our community and um, still wear a fucking mask. <laughs> Stay yummy.